Chapter 13 Abusive Band of Gold I saw my dad lose his job so many times. Mostly, it was due to management changes, and while I'm in the same industry that he was in, I have a hard time not resenting him, almost jealously. Remembering how quickly he'd get rehired after being fired, why am I having such a horrible time of having people believe in me? Don't genetics count for anything? Am I just not a force to contend with? He was certainly a hot commodity to everyone other than my mom. His job loss would be in the paper. People that were outraged and other employers would offer him jobs immediately. He'd have people that would rally together and spread the word way before social media even existed. My mom would gather her strength and talk my sister and I through yet another move, which meant new friends, new bullying, new schools, and new misery for all of us. I knew how much she hated him, and yet she stayed. For us, she believed in waiting until we were out of school before making her move. While we were very little girls, she was absolutely the best mom anyone could ask for. She took us to the library every week, taught us how to color outside the lines, encouraged us to speak up and say what we felt. Little did she know that that would be the cause of me being too big for my britches and just how far outside the lines I eventually would color. She'd stay behind while my dad found work and moved ahead. I remember one moving day from Cleveland to Philly. We'd given all of our food away. The movers had come and gone. My dad had left weeks before, leaving her to do all the moving on her own. The day of the move, we had a blizzard that left us buried under 26 inches of snow and not able to get out of our house. The neighbors had to dig us out because the snow drifts were so high we couldn't even open the doors. She'd get frazzled, but (laughs) I learned a steady hand from her, watching her pick herself up time after time. Many a day I spent swiveling in my office chair, bouncing back and forth in my head like a ping-pong ball, just like my ride in this cab. Ups and downs, todays and yesterdays. Into my voice recorder, and then onto my keyboard. It's strange how things remembered weren't necessarily important then, but are becoming a part of who I am now. The swiveling of the chair stops in my head as I lean forward in the car, wanting desperately to type. I had twin beds, and it was just me in the bedroom. Why? I needed to think like my mom to figure this one out. In that very house, at age six, in Cleveland, I'm remembering my bedroom. My sister, two years younger, had her own room, and yet I had twin beds. I'm thinking of my own five kids, and no way would I invest in two beds for one child unless they were to share a room. Why did my mom do that? Red velvet carpeting, white Hollywood-style bedspreads, and red velvet heart pillows times two. To match the carpeting, that was quite an expense, one that I'd almost ruined, by the way. Peter Pan, the movie, had tremendous influence over me. I always wanted to be Wendy because that nurturing character was so appealing to me. Being able to fly via Tinkerbell's dust just added mystery and vividness to my imagination gone wild. One day I took out my box of crayons shaved many colors, put the shavings into a plastic bowl, 
stood up on the white bedspread, threw the shavings into the air, jumped, and thought I could fly. I jumped on top of the shavings that were about to be ground into the red velvet carpeting, which didn't have a very happy ending. My mom understood my biggest fear was not her reaction to the ruined carpet, but it was the crocodiles and Dr. Hook that became a living nightmare to me. I felt they lived under my bed, a much bigger concern to a six-year-old than a mother's scorn, for sure. I still think they're under my bed. As a result, I never sleep with my hand hanging over the edge. True. And ironically, every one of my daughters today wishes they were Tinkerbell. The twin beds have really baffled me. I've stopped thinking like me to give myself a chance to put myself in her head. Why would she buy me twin beds? Was it a large room that needed to be filled up? Were the beds buy one, get one free? During the course of this cab ride, even though I thought I knew the answer, I called my mom out of the blue while the cabbie was listening to ask her why she put twin beds in a six-year-old's bedroom over 40 years ago. She said, I think you know the answer, as if we just had this conversation and we were picking up right where we left off. I said, I believe you did that so I'd feel comfortable with having girlfriends sleep over. I heard her smack her hand on the table on the other end of the line as she said, You're absolutely correct. I always wanted you to feel you could bring someone home and make them feel comfortable. In listening to her and wondering, when did I become her? I also realized for so many years, I didn't want to be like her. Based on all the knowledge my dad had spewed, but now I kind of liked being like her. My dad taught me never to do anything I'd never want to see on the front page of the paper. But my mom taught me fear and how to overcome it at an early age. I was sitting and watching TV with my parents and sister, and a picture of a little girl my age was on a black and white screen. She was pretty, smiling with curly hair. But at the same time, the news person was describing that she'd been missing thought to have wandered off, and I remember feeling remorse for her. My parents would have been so mad at me if I'd wandered off. The woman continued to talk, saying her body had been found and mutilated in a nearby field. I asked what mutilated meant. Since they explained what it meant, I've never forgotten the mixed feeling of seeing a pretty little girl and mutilation in the same thought. I remember my parents explaining how we could no longer walk to school alone or go to the store unattended until this murderer was found. After it was determined that her father had killed her, we were then allowed at the ages of four and six to walk to the store alone again without any trepidation. Life was certainly different back then. I still don't let my girls walk on their own even at the age of 14 without accompaniment. I took my sister to the playground near the school. I was a second mother kind of kid and always protected her. She was always a special needs child, so we'd hold hands. I'd chase her bullies away. I made her aware of where I was every minute of the day. We were leaving the playground, and I saw her about to step on a wasp's nest. I ran at her and hoped to push her away before she stepped down, but was one step too late. The wasps surrounded me, 
stinging me on my face, three on my eyelid. I remember crying while she led me home because I couldn't see. Role reversal yet again. But the thought that was running through my head on that long trip home was, would my parents be mad at me? Of course they weren't, but I felt I'd done the wrong job, not taking good enough care of her and me. After losing my job, I still applied for jobs, answering ads that I knew were not for me and submitting to ads that were for me and wondered why I didn't get hired. All of this self-doubt is enough to suffocate me from the inside out. Is no one taking me seriously? Has anyone ever taken me seriously? Or have I just been fooling myself all along? Most of the time when I'd sit in front of my computer, I'd wear nothing but a low-cut bra and skimpy panties. And if asked why, my first response would be because no one can see me. But secretly, I feel I look my best this way. It's still all about sex. I woke up today realizing I have so many thoughts inside that have had no closure that they've manifested themselves into my everyday style of living. A shrink would tell me, Dora, you need to take ownership of these thoughts and memories and check them off one by one in order to deal and heal. I'd tell her, you just want to know where I bought this lingerie and why I still look as good as I do in it. Now maybe you'll understand just who you're dealing with. Quirky, sexual, and honest to a detriment. And after affirmation, then maybe I'd consider her suggestion. My favorite part is knowing that he, whoever he is, enjoys the moment more than I do. If I can offer that amount of sensuality to a man without really trying, imagine what I could do if I loved him. Most tell me, you overthink. How can someone overthink anything? I'd think this would make me more aware than most, and it's certainly better than underthinking. Having overthought it all, I took her advice, and I've realized something huge. I've realized that everything I do and have done in my life is centered around sex. As you've already seen, some things lend a lot to the imagination. But they've been real situations to me. One of my fears in unemployment has been that I'd abuse friendship by overstepping and bringing someone who's working in when I'm down. No one wants to touch an unemployed loser. That's part of the dark side of me. I'm most depressed at night. It hits strongest at night when it's quiet and I'm alone with thoughts that I've put away during the day. Should I have let this man who hired me call me babe from the start? Did he really want to hire me for my skills, or was he just picturing me under him in bed? Did he ever really see my worth? These thoughts just seem to rush at me and smack me in the face at night, enabling, I bet I enabled him. How am I going to keep my kids safe? What else can I do to make immediate money? How extreme can I be? I get scared. If I can't make a decision at night by myself, how can I possibly make sense out of life during a chaotic day? I have children that are depending on a woman who's afraid of the dark. They don't know, and I'm too afraid to tell them, that I am capable of going to extremes. 
I stumbled upon an answer, which once again involved sex. I was a victim of role reversal. When I was 16, both parents leveled with me, unbeknownst to each other, about things I shouldn't have been able to comprehend. It was frightening. They were secrets involving sex, sexual stories told to me by both parents. I don't want to do that to my kids. Dora, your mom has been a horrible wife, said my dad. Not only will she not clean the house, she just lays there. And that's why I won't have sex with her. I really don't want to know this, I said. Why don't you just talk to her? My dad replied, Dora, I tried to talk to her for years about it, but she won't change. She's like a limp rag in bed. He always told me, when you're in public, act like a lady. But when you're in bed, act like a whore, not like your mother. Mom said, I was a virgin when I married your dad. He had sex with me on our honeymoon once, and then he never looked at me again. I knew that night that I'd made a mistake. I was an eager bride, and he had been very aggressive sexually throughout our dating years. But then he just stopped, which made me feel unattractive. When I repeatedly asked what was wrong, he would just roll over and go to sleep. He never touched me again. That was the way it was year after year. I asked, why did you stay? She said, I would never leave back then. Never consider breaking up a marriage and hurting my girls until you were old enough. I remember sighing at that point in the conversation, thinking, how many years had I not been able to stand her because of the yelling and screaming she did at me, when the whole time... It was probably because she was angry at me for not seeing what she was going through while I was favoring my dad. So many negative stories were told to me about each other and others, things I'd never think to tell my own kids today. In fact, sometimes I think this has all been a facade, almost like an internal battle. Could I have had kids just to prove that I could be maybe a better parent? Now it seems silly. All these years later, I'm still trying to repair the damage that was centered around their sexless marriage. The funny part is, I sort of feel like 30 years later, I'm understanding more about my mom and less about my dad. I came home from school when I was nine and walked into the kitchen where my mom was cooking. After I yelled out, Hi, Mommy! She turned from the sink and said, Dora, I have something to tell you. Our neighbor Bob came over. I know you're very young, but I need you to understand that he raped me. He walked in our house while you were at school, pulled me into the bathroom, and forced me down on the floor. I just don't want you to go near him and keep an eye on your sister. I was frightened, remembering the newscast I'd seen about the little girl that had been killed by her dad. I didn't really understand murder or rape. I just knew they were bad. She turned back to the sink and left me defenseless with my own thoughts. Talking with my mom about this episode last week, 40 years later, she admitted that because she had been so sexually starved for years, maybe, just maybe, she had innocently led him on or led him to think she was vulnerable. He absolutely did force his way into our house and into her, but once again, she was afraid to say anything to anyone except me for fear of shame. 
She was ashamed for the families involved and ashamed that she might secretly have wanted it to happen. NASCAR revisited. Apples are staying closer to that damn tree. The more I remember. I want to take you deeper. I think I need you, my dear reader, to be a part of this. I feel lost sometimes. Nothing that another strong set of eyes and a knowledgeable soul might be able to help heal. Maybe you've been through similar situations, but you've been afraid to discuss them out loud. I like to stir that pot. Your pot. My pot. It's always centered around the sex. It's brimming, boiling over. It's coming again. Sexual healing for sexual starvation. Apples don't fall far. Our beginnings do affect our futures. I feel like I've got a lot to lose by telling you, but more to lose by not telling you. I wonder, as I sit and collect my thoughts, which are more scandalous, my earlier days or my present? Maybe I'll just keep stirring my own pot to see if the cream does rise to the top. Because cream is not always what it seems to be. All the thoughts and memories that filter through my head to the rhythm of the tick-tick of the meter. I'm sitting with my girlfriend in a Philly travel agency, waiting to buy tickets for our trip back to Miami. If you'll remember, she's the one that taught me how to get free drugs while I waited tables when I first arrived in Miami. While waiting for the travel agent, I found myself lost in a memory. Once upon a time, while living in Philly with my boyfriend, I had worked for a jewelry store and had befriended another girl that worked there. She got caught up in a mess, stealing a ring, was about to get caught with it in her possession, handed it to me, and asked me to cover for her. Being concerned at that moment that the owners would think I was involved, I held on to the ring, took it home, hid it under the mattress while I tried to decide what to do with it the next day. I was worried that if I got caught with the ring that I'd lose my job. I told my boyfriend, How bizarre is this? He was allowed to spend the night with me in my room without explanation at the age of 16. To this day, I don't know what my parents were thinking. We got up and went to school the next day. And when I returned home, I went to get the ring because I decided to risk my co-worker's friendship and return it to the owners of the store. To my surprise, it wasn't there. I'd asked my boyfriend if he'd seen it. He said, no. I searched my home for the rest of that day, but to my utter dismay, I never found it. In fact, I looked for that ring for years afterwards. It was a horrible feeling, just a very uncomfortable loose end. A few weeks later, he and I decided to take a vacation trip to Miami, and he treated me. What a great surprise! Years later, we were living in Philly. I'd given up my passion of music, as mentioned. He continued to be abusive, and I dealt with it. For what reason, at the age of 20-something, is beyond me. After nine years of uneducated love, blind faith, and blind trust, he asked me to marry him. But before I'd answered, he wanted to be honest about a situation that had occurred. He told me he was the one that stole that ring from under my mattress that very night it had gone missing years ago. 
The thoughts of dismay were swirling through my head, bouncing from right brain to left. All those years I trusted him, never doubting him, blind, blind, and more blind and stupid. He took the new engagement ring out of his pocket to hand it to me, and I asked him to put it away. After all of those years of abuse, both physically and emotionally, this was by far the worst abuse I'd ever felt. I told him it was over. He was a liar. He was due to leave on a business trip the next day, and I told him, I'll be gone before you get back. I was beyond angry. He cried. He begged. He resorted to grabbing me, putting his face in my face, telling me I was making a big mistake, and once again, I took it. I knew it would be the last time. I disappeared inside my own little place and just waited it out. He left the next day while I stayed in our apartment searching for a new place and decided to go back to my love of music, looking for a new band at the same time. I was finally free. Before I found a new place to live, I'd answered an ad and had spoken with a guitarist of an all-original rock group. I felt my juices flowing again as I invited him over to talk, just to check out the chemistry. Joe came over that night, and he was absolutely, breathtakingly handsome. I was in awe of his style, his musical passion, his looks, and the fact that he got me wet the minute I opened the door. This was going to be a win-win. I was cleaning up fast, becoming the person I used to be, and so thrilled not to be jaded. In the early goings, Joe helped me find another apartment, kept our relationship professional, and introduced me to his band, Syzygy. We were all a perfect fit. Right away, I had become the other songwriter and lead singer of a very important part of my life. I felt relevant again. I was a star inside and out. I felt my aura glowing. I felt worthy. I loved my life. And I mattered. The songs we wrote were outstanding. And Joe and I entered into a relationship. Yet, feeling it might be uncomfortable to our band and our audience, we decided to keep it a secret. I can't begin to explain the tone of the music, the writing, the blend. It was just stellar. It was kind of a fusion of pop, rock, and blues. We wound up recording and had several record companies interested in our music using a producer from a major record label to help while in the studio. One of the songs meant for the EP was not written by us, but was written for us, enabling us to use it for his and our benefit. But while in the studio, he called saying he'd changed his mind. He didn't want to give up the publishing rights and refused us the song. I sat with the producer and rewrote the entire song within one hour. It became the hit. The nod I received from this producer opened up a new portal of self-confidence that piggybacked itself onto my already keep-your-head-up-I-can-do-this self. I knew that I could be whatever I wanted to be. My biggest flaw was that I never felt I could do anything without having a partner. I always wanted to have someone or something to be attached to, and most often it wound up dragging me down. I would usually trust unconditionally, as I did this time, but I was wrong. Wrong. 
so wrong. I tried desperately to keep things in order so they made sense. Sense is for those that calculate their dreams. I was naive and just unconditionally accepted that those that I loved would do the right things for me. After tension pulled us as tight as a tightrope and record companies made their pitches of promises not delivered, I felt as though I was missing a piece of the puzzle. Why, if there was so much interest in our band, didn't they invest in us as they were doing for Pat Benatar or Patti Smythe? We were told by the higher-ups that we were of their level. What was I missing? Looking back, I believe we weren't managed correctly, and ultimately it caused the band members to lose faith in each other. I held on as tightly as I could because I genuinely couldn't imagine my life without this music. The soon-to-be destruction of the band was never made clear to me until I wound up in another city two decades later. The amount of pain that erupted because I allowed the record business to interfere with the joy of creating a song and demonstrating it out loud to my fans was irrevocable. Almost as though I was gagged from the inside out by my own doing. I couldn't get past the fact that passion was superseded by business. When did my music become someone else's vision of prosperity or not? Every note I sang, every melody that escaped my lips would be the story, the sharing of a life's experience. It wasn't intended to be the projected record sales of a band that could turn south as well as north. I think it was the first time and probably the last time that I allowed the artist in me to smother the businesswoman in me. Quite a life lesson as it shut me up for good. I never musically belted out another line again. I just got quiet. As mentioned, 20 years later, while I'm living in another state, but my career made me visible to many that had lost touch over the years, I got a call from a man whose name I recognized but just couldn't seem to place right away. He reminded me that he'd been the promoter that was trying to place our band way back when. He'd been friends with my guitarist's sister and had come to hear us back then as a favor to her. He wound up loving us. He'd pushed hard and was responsible for lining up the many record company showcases we'd had. What happened? I said. Dora, your boyfriend got nervous and was afraid the band wouldn't get signed. He was afraid he'd lose his day job if he invested any more time or money into the band. Once again... I'd entrusted a valuable piece of my life to someone that I'd now considered to have been a bad choice. I felt tears well up in the bottom of my eyes as I finally had the closure I'd been searching for all those years. The answer. I may have lost the opportunity for stardom, but with those tear-filled eyes, I realized I'd gained five of the most important pieces of my life. My thoughts ran to each of my children. I wouldn't have had them if I'd been successful with my music. It's amazing how we can justify and rewrite our thought processes for survival's sake. At that moment, while on the phone with him, that's what I did. And it's a pattern I recognize. I seem to continue to do it. I rewrote my own ending, kept the same beginning, but just gave it a new middle, with purpose. I had five beautiful kids. Sometimes it works, but then again, we can only lie to ourselves so many times before getting a bye. Swish. 
as in the perfect basket. And back we go. A Westwood One podcast production.